Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 8, please. Keep that open this morning as we walk through in this continuing series called The Pursuit of Wisdom. We're looking at some of the songs found in the Psaltery and some of the Proverbs to find out what God has addressed when it comes to wisdom. How do we find it? What's the advantages of finding it? How do we implement it? And and why has God given us these words of wisdom? We started in Psalm 1 where we found out that wisdom is delighting in the Lord and his instruction, knowing who God is and what he has in store for us, listening and responding to his instruction. Then we went to Psalm 2, which said, what happens when people rebel is that God will send a king and that king will set everything right and restore everything that God intended. And we realized that that was Jesus as the Messiah. And we are told and encouraged to kiss the king, to hold on to him, to enjoy him. And so wisdom is not only heeding the instruction, but returning to the instruction after we've lost it. Last week, Uh, Elijah talked to us about the wisdom in wealth and how it either draws us away from God or it draws us to God and that wealth can even show us it's who we belong to matters more than what we possess. Today we're going to look at Psalm 8. It's a unique psalm in that it's an expression of appreciation and it focuses on the greatness of God and the position of man, which is quite the juxtaposition, the, the greatness of God and man's position within or against God's greatness. And so I've got three just, it's, it's a song that has three movements to it, and they're all going to be uh, set up by a question. And I'm going to take this ridiculous risk, and I'm going to ask you the question of each point at the end of the point to see if you're awake. All right, are you ready? And you can answer that out loud. We have full freedom on a holiday weekend, all right? So the three questions of the morning are, how big is our God? Who is man? And can you feel the love tonight? Little... Lion King shout out for you there, okay? So that'll keep you going, give you something at the end. So let's begin with how big is our God? I want you to know that all of our problems in life, all of the issues we face that are uncomfortable, all the issues we face of division come down to these core principles. It's either we don't know who God is or we forget who God is in the biggest moments of our life. And if you would go back and take a survey and be contemplative about this, I bet you'd find that some of the greatest mistakes you've made in your life have been founded on you didn't know who God was or you forgot. And because of that, you chose to become and do what you never should have become or have done. An awareness of God refocuses all of us on the reason we exist and gives us a legitimate purpose in our life. Let's read the first three verses. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I considered your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. I wanna pause there. When David looked at the physical universe, when he looked at the stars, the planets, the celestial beings, he concluded there was a God. If you wanna know more about what led David to that decision, I would encourage you sometime this week, Begin in the morning with Psalm 19 and read it before you go to bed at night. This is where David really extrapolates on what creation says about God. But David points out that it shows the reality of God. And I want you to know, sociologically, every culture worships in some fashion creation. And what I mean by worships is they honor it and acknowledge that it preexisted them 
It was not brought about by them, but by an outside force. And most people, if they're intellectually honest, will look at creation, if they'll spend any time at all pondering it, when they look at creation, they'll come to this conclusion. It did not create itself. That there is an intricacy to it that must be understood. So David begins by calling out not only the majesty of God, he says, your glory is set above the heavens. In other words, what I see in the beauty of all creation doesn't even begin to touch who you are, God. And yet it reveals that you do exist. So the majesty of God is revealed in creation, but so is the magnitude of God. The greater depth and power in all of the beauty. What does this passage tell us about the magnitude of God and about his great majesty? Look with me again at verse 3. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, now I would never have seen this on my own, but in my research, several commentators pointed out something that I would not have known, that this was a Hebrew idiom. It would have been an expression that made sense in their world, but it, it doesn't say here that it was the work of his arms or his hands. It actually says it was the work of his fingers. Now let me explain. It meant that God did not create the world by just picking up the biggest blocks only he could pick up and stacking them. It actually meant, no, it was his handiwork. That with his fingers, with the intricacy of his artistry, God put things together. Think of the rose, how different it is from the daisy. Think of the insects and the birds. Think of dogs. Think of the whale and the shark in the waters. And you realize that this was not just a bunch of blocks stacked together, that our creator was an artist. And with great intricacy and delicacy and artistry, he created this world. Fingerprints on all of our hands, unique from anybody else's. I'm told, uh, I, I read somewhere that in your eye, the color of your eye are close to 10,000 ranging colors. With the artistry of his fingertip, with great delicacy and intricacy, he created each and everything. Creation itself talks about the vastness and magnitude of God. I read one time somewhere, I'll never be able to forget it, that if the Milky Way galaxy uh, was the size of North America, then our solar system would be a coffee cup sitting in the middle of Kansas. You wanna talk about scope? The beauty of what God has done? And if God made all of this with the intricacy and artistry of his finger, how should you regard him? Or if he created all of this with his fingertip? And he holds all of it together, as it says in Hebrews 1, by his words, by his will. If that is true, do you ask a God like that to be your assistant? Or do you take a knee before him and offer to serve him forever? You see, the question of the majesty and magnitude of God is something that I want to encourage us. I want to encourage you all morning long. I want you to walk out of here with your tail wagging because you know that the God who created this universe cares about you as a person. And if you walk out of here today, it's a good day. Well, not if you leave here, but if you leave here thinking that. The magnitude of God is something we don't think enough about, I suspect. We gloss it over, yeah, yeah, he made the heavens and the earth. Stop and spend some time looking at each and realize that he's saying something to us. Something I think we need to hear. Sociologically, I also want you to know that creation is telling us something. Did you know that every Ancient culture has an origin story of the earth. This is, there's no culture that's ever been founded that doesn't try to explain how the earth came to be. Almost everyone but the Christian worldview suggests that the world came from a battle or the result of the struggle. That it was the result of, of anger and evil and good coming together and, and 
Every culture has this story about there was a great epic battle and the earth was formed from the struggle and from the destruction. And I want you to know what the scriptures say. They say that it was not formed from the struggle. It was formed from the creation of love. That God created all of this as a gift. There was no struggle. It was his goodness providing for all of us. And I'll even take you to that very first verse where the English translation says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. The Hebrew says, O Jehovah, our Adonai, how great is your name. We would translate that in English, taking the word Jehovah and Adonai and putting them together in words that would make sense in our culture today. We would say this, O most powerful God, or the most powerful God. David was a shepherd. He spent nights out in fields. He looked at creation all the time, and all he could conclude was, it didn't make itself, and I know who made it. And he focused on the magnitude and beauty of God. King Solomon, when he built the great temple on the mountaintop, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, when he built a great temple and he prayed over the dedication of it, he said in 1 Kings 8, the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Solomon, after building this temple that took years and all of this money and all of this energy, he stopped and he went, guys, this isn't even close. It's just a taste of God's power and his majesty in a simple location. You see, it's only a partial revelation, but it was enough to reveal there is a God and his magnitude we will never fully understand until the day we meet him face to face. So, I told you I would do this. Let's see if we can play our game together today. How big is our God? Thank you, big. It's that simple. Big enough for us to understand, bigger than we would ever understand. But he has given us glimpses in creation. And I encourage you, even though it's mugging hot out there, spend some time walking in God's creation, realizing from the blade of grass to the greatest animal ever created, God was doing some beautiful showing off. Why? So we would know who he was. So we could appreciate that. Second question David ponders in the eighth Psalm is, what is man? If you know how big God is, then what are we? Look at verses three and four. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you were mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? It's a fair question, isn't it? David says, how big is God? He's huge. How big am I? Oh, not so huge. In fact, pretty insignificant. Now, before you panic and think, oh, he's going to bash us that we're worthless. No, no. I would never say we're worthless because we're made in the image of God and we contain a soul that is given to us by God, carrying his image in us. We are not worthless, but we are not significant either. And in our rebellion, we must understand who has real significance and who is trying desperately to make their own. When David asks the question, what is man that you're mindful of him or that you care for him? He's not really talking about where their place was. He's talking about why would God, after we've rebelled and told him to leave us alone, why would God give us any mind at all? Why should he? The answer is he shouldn't, right? This vast, powerful God who can create this universe with his mere words, why in the world would he care about someone like me? This is David's question. But I want you to see that the English translation there for the word care in verse four actually can be better translated in the English as go out and find. Picture the story in the New Testament where Jesus tells of a shepherd who had 100 sheep and one wandered away and he went and pursued the one. 
This is the imagery that David's talking about who was himself a shepherd. He said, of all the things to worry about in the universe, all the things under your control, why in the world would you care about one single person? David said, why would you care about me as insignificant as I am? Why would you come and find me? Not just care, but pursue, chase after, seek. I wanna show you the King James version of this. Translated in the 1600s. Their translation is more accurate to the original language. What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? To come after, to pursue, to seek. Let me take you to your New Testament. Zachariah is married to a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary who would birth Jesus. And Elizabeth and Zechariah are way too old to have a child, but God says you're gonna have a baby. And Zechariah announces it's not possible and God silences his tongue. The last words out of his mouth were words of doubt. God silences his tongue and then Elizabeth becomes pregnant and gives birth to a young man named John. We call him John the Baptist, the forerunner of the great Messiah. And when they came and say, what's the child's name gonna be? Following what he was told to do, he writes the word John and when he obeys God, having seen God's goodness, having that been revealed to him, when he understood that God had delivered on his promise, he then goes from his last words being words of doubt. Listen to the words he says in Luke 1:68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah understood what David forecast that the great God of the universe cares so much about his creation that he would come and visit us and walk on this earth in the form of Jesus Christ to deliver us from what we had destroyed. And Zechariah says, my son will be the forerunner of the one who will visit us. And he praises God with words. It takes you to Genesis one and two. When Adam and Eve were created, God said, I'm gonna crown you with glory and honor. I'm gonna give you dominion. You are going to rule this earth with me. Let's look at verse five. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David understands what was promised and what was lost. He understood what Adam and Eve were supposed to do and then what they chose to do and how they lost the opportunity to do what they were supposed to do. But notice it also says in verse five, this was pointed out to me. He doesn't say they have made you a little bit higher than the animals. He says, no, we've made you a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. That God has positioned you and I of all his creation. Please understand this. Of all of his creation, God has put us in a mediating position. I'll explain it this way. Angels and heavenly beings have souls and no bodies. The animals of the world have bodies and no souls. Man is the only creation that has body and soul. God has placed us like he did Adam and Eve in a position. A position in such a way that the glory of God can be reflected onto us into this world. It's not our glory, it's his glory. And he has given us glory and honor by giving us a position that no other part of creation has. David would stop and think about this over and over, how God had given him a chance to mediate, or we might use a different word, be a priest, between God and creation, to serve it, to honor it, to show the glory of it, to practice the dominion of God under God's control. Verses six, seven, and eight. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, 
all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea, all of it. All of it has been given by God to us. Human beings, we have importance. Our significance is found when we're submitted to God. Our significance is lost when we're only submitted to our own power and authority. Can you see what he's done here? David says, I've thought about this. And in all of creation, God has given man a place in the kingdom and we threw it away, but he's gonna redeem it. He's gonna restore it. And we get to mediate. We get to live and do these things. He could have said, they're a little higher than the animals. He said, no, but they're just lower than the heavenly beings. Let me take you to your Old Testament, Daniel. There's a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in from Babylon and take over the holy city of Jerusalem, to take all of the remnants out of the temple, to take the people into captivity for 70 years because Israel, or the people of Israel were being punished for breaking the covenant of God repeatedly. Remember, most of our worst moments happen in life when we forget who God is or we never knew who he was. And they had forgotten their covenant relationship with God and Nebuchadnezzar took them into captivity for 70 years. And Nebuchadnezzar got a little chesty. He started feeling himself, if you will, like I'm the, I'm the deal. And he, this is a quote from Daniel 4.30. Is this not the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar's feeling himself right here. And he's in front of everybody. He's going, look what I've done. And from the heavens, paraphrasing, he could hear a voice clearing itself. <clears throat> Excuse me? You did this? God said, I gave you this nation as punishment for what they've done. And you think you did this? And so God visited him. I'll bring it to a, a, a quick point. God says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to lose your ever-loving mind. And you're gonna live out in the wilderness for seven years. And you're gonna be like an animal and you're gonna eat the grass of the field and your nails are gonna grow long and your hair's gonna grow long and you are going to be a beast. You have no glory. This was not your doing. And instead of honoring me for all I've done, this is what you do. And so for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar becomes an animal eating the grass of the field, living like a beast in the field. And you think, Mark, what in the world does this have to do with Psalm 8? Listen to me. You and I have a choice in life. Either live toward the heavens we were created for or live like a beast, just a little bit different than the animals, but not that much. And haven't we all made a choice to work so hard to regain our control and our majesty and our glory that we're just a little bit better than the animals instead of living toward the heavenly beings we were created to be in a world that should reflect the glory of God to a world that so much needs the glory of God right now to believe in a God who can provide and a God who does care and a God who is interested we so much worry about who we can dominate and what we can get out of them and what we can take from this earth. And we're like Nebuchadnezzar. We didn't learn our lesson, so we live like beasts. How big is our God? Real big. And who is man? A broken part of God's plan. So let me ask the third question. Can you see his majesty in the gospel? I want you to see the majesty of God in the gospel. Remember I told you, when you walk out of here today, I want you to walk out of here knowing that the God of the universe does care for you. Just, he does care for you. He comes to visit you. He has been here to redeem you and restore you to the place he created for you. The author of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 as a description of Jesus. 
And, it, and the author does it interestingly. In verse uh, ch- chapter two of Hebrews, verse eight, it says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Remember, there was a moment when God said to Adam and Eve, you are going to reign with me and have dominion over this earth. I'm going to give you this mediating position where you're going to do my work here on earth and we're gonna work in partnership. And man said, no, no, I want control. Leave us alone. And God allowed them to have the sense of control that only showed they had none. And everything was lost. And the author of Hebrews says, so God sent Jesus and left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at this present time, we don't see everything subject to them. And we would know that today, wouldn't you? This world's not the way it's supposed to be. There's something different. We know our hearts yearn for better days, not about riches and prosperity, but we yearn for a better day when people cared for one another, respected one another, loved one another, and we weren't arguing about who's right and wrong. We just would love and serve one another. And we know that one day when Jesus returns, this new kingdom will be established and there will be no more war and no more fighting and no more hatred and no more bigotry, no more poverty, no more pain. And God's gonna unite all of this. In verse nine in Hebrews two, it says, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels. Have you heard that before? He's quoting Psalm eight, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. God sent his son. We know that, we celebrate that. So the reason we're gathered here this morning is to honor the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the work that they're doing in reconciling all things together through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. We know this. God sent his son to save us from our own rebellion. And he fulfilled the role that we were given so that by his mercy, we can be restationed in the role of reflecting the glory and honor, majesty and magnitude of our Father so that the world would look at us and see the, the reason we live our lives and the reason we entrust our lives and the reason we sacrifice our lives for the kingdom of heaven is not because we're better people, but we have regained a vision. We have turned our eyes from looking down over what we can control and we've looked up to Christ. We are just a little lower than the heavenly beings. So let's not worry about how much greater we are than the beasts. Let's aspire toward the heavens toward the calling that God has given us. Hebrews 3.1 says, therefore, and I want you to listen carefully to this verse, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle, our emissary, our communication, and our high priest, our mediator, our fulfillment. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, look up, not down. Don't look at the things you can control. Look up to the one who you submit to, the one who you surrender to, the one you desire to be connected to. This is why David can end Psalm 8 the same way he began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, because he has re-included us in the plan we rejected. And his creation shows us that God has all things in control, including what is man that you would care or visit us, because we have been created by God for a very special place in his creation. Oh, most holy God, how majestic is your name. Hebrews 2.1 says it this way. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, 
to what we have heard so we do not drift away. The task of the day is to spend some time pondering the majesty and magnitude of God through the blood of Jesus Christ so we can be restored back to a place that is not demanded of us as a repayment for punishment, but actually a surrender to the fact that God, may I today reflect you in such a way that your glory will be seen and the world will know what I know, that you are a good, loving father who pursued us when you should have abandoned us with cause. He's that good. I'd like you to take the elements that we'll use this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as you prepare those, I'd like you to hold them until I'm done praying this morning because I'd like to set the stage for what we're about to do. And, and here's my concern this morning, that we not take it because it's our habit. I pray that we take it because it's our joy. That we're not going to do this this morning because it's what we always do on Sundays when we're together. I actually want you to, to think with me through some things that the Bible has taught me. If you look at the Old Testament sacrifices, you'll know that a, a, a goat or a lamb or a bull was brought in and it would have been a sacrifice to the person who possessed that animal to sacrifice its life and give it to the Father. But the blood of the offering was for the atonement of their sins. So all of the Old Testament sacrifices, whether it was a grain offering or whether it was a meat offering or whatever it was, it was all offered to God. And it wasn't because God needed it. It was because we needed to be reminded of it. We needed to focus our minds on all that God gave us that we needed. The sacrifices did God nothing. In fact, he said, I don't want your bulls and your goats and your lambs without your heart. I want, I want the reason you sacrifice it, not the sacrifice. And then you get to the New Testament, we have these things, we call them sacraments in the church world. It's the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we think, well, we do these things for God. No, no. We don't do, we're not baptized for God. We're baptized to remind ourselves how much we need to die to our sin and be washed clean. And we take the Lord's Supper, not because we're doing God a favor, but we need to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. Psalm 8 is all about the majesty of God, it means we have to slow our lives down enough to spend some time savoring how good he was to not only invite us into the creation story, but to reposition us in the creation story. So what I'd like you to do willfully rather than habitually is I'd like you to think through this thought with me, then I'll pray and then we'll take these elements together. I pray this morning, church, that we can eat and drink with an awareness of the majesty of our God, that we can eat and drink with respect to Jesus Christ who paid the price that we might do this, that we would eat and drink as his requested guest at his table, that we would eat and drink with joy, that we would eat and drink with promise, that we would eat and drink in the, to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, that we would raise our glass and raise the piece of bread to him and in honor and glory, cherish the majesty of our Father, the majesty of the Son, and the majesty of the Spirit that meets us in this moment. Not that God needs this from us, but we need to be reminded that the sacrifices and the sacraments were what we needed and Jesus provided all of it. Let's pray. Father, we eat and drink to your name. Spirit, we eat and drink because of the recognition that you bring to our soul in moments like this. Jesus, we eat and drink 
for your glory and honor, that the world may know that through your body and blood, we were washed clean, set free to not just protect ourselves, but to live in the kingdom, to bring you glory and honor. Father, as the stars and the planets speak of who you are, may we be those shining lights here on earth. As we eat and drink today, Jesus, thank you for bringing us back into the story. What is man that you care about us, that you would visit us? We have no idea, but we're grateful you did. It's in your most holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.